Hi there, welcome to an episode of an Inside View podcast in association with On The Ball Team Building. I'm your host, Jamie Finn. If this is your first time listening, please do go back to episode one and have a listen. If you haven't done so already, please do click subscribe. There is a business or sports person in each of us and we hope that our guest stories will help our listeners to chase their dreams. Welcome to episode 13 of series 4 of an interview podcast with On The Ball Team Building. We're back again this week with another exciting lineup. But beforehand, a special mention to Sport Doors, who are sponsors for this series. They're an online sports sponsorship platform that connects athletes with companies all around the world. The Irish-owned online marketplace has over 4,000 athletes. For more information, be sure to check out the Sport Doors website. Also, a special mention to the Shire Baron Cafe and Clarny, who are also supporting the podcast for this series. This is the 98th overall episode of an Inside View podcast and will be the last of this series. Our guest this week is Tom Otten, who is the CEO of digital communications agency Create Group, which have been in the top 50 fastest growing agencies globally for the past three years. Tom has a love for ultra-endurance running, which has competed in some of the most grueling events all around the world. There is no doubt we have a huge amount to cover, so let's bring him on. Hi Tom, thanks for taking time out to come on Interview Podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, mate. Look, thank you very much for, for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today and being uh, and being on your podcast. So thanks for the invite. Look, you're a, you're a CEO of um, a top company here in the Middle East, um, 2022 Agency of the Year, TEDx speaker, ultra runner, former UE rugby player, podcaster. Um, so how do you make time for everything? Yeah, I get that question a lot. A lot of it's just coming down to, I'd like to say that I'm super organized, that I'm not. And I just try and make sure that I'm getting the right stuff done and, and say no to things that, uh, that that just aren't aligned with where I want to be. So it can be difficult sometimes, but but learning to say no is probably one of the most powerful things that, that I've learned over, I'd say, recent years. And just understanding where is it that you want to go? How are you spending your time? Do those two things align? And, and just moving forward accordingly. So it's a, it can be a struggle sometimes, but yeah, I try my best. You know, in the early days when you came to Dubai, like if you said no to, to everything, you kind of wouldn't be able to broaden your horizon and, and you know, build those contacts. Um, when was the point that you, you had to take a, a step back and realize, you know, I need to... I need to focus on my loved ones here and I need to focus on my business here. I know you said it was only, you know, recently enough, but... Did it not happen earlier in your in your journey? Yeah, so I think look, it's it's um it depends on a number of things, right? When I'm say when I talk about saying no to things, there's there's a lot of social stuff that I've missed with friends. There's a lot of times where I've had to prioritize work or family um or potential opportunities that are related to work. I don't know if they will will play out or not, but I have to give them the time to see where we go with it versus catching up with mates uh, and sometimes doing more of the social things. So Look, I do think things have got to be balanced, but everybody's balance is different. Um, and I think it's very easy to to judge people from afar in terms of how they choose to to live their lives. But as long as you've worked out where it is that you want to be um, and you've structured your day and your week and your months accordingly, then you're going to end up getting to the right places. So it's, um, yeah, I would just say it, it's about that. It's about understanding where, where you want to be and, and working accordingly. 
You mentioned something before in a, a podcast interview, and I thought it was brilliant the way you, you put it. Uh, macro balanced and micro imbalanced. Do you want to yeah. give some context yeah. to that? Yeah, I think, I think about that a lot. Um, and again, that's why I mentioned the point about it's easy to judge people from afar, right? Because you don't know what's going on in other people's lives. But let's bring it um, a, a bit closer to home for a second. So what, what macro balance and micro imbalance actually means is that there are different areas of your life that you can focus on at different times. Now you can't be excelling at all of them at all times because that's just not, it's not possible, right? You need, sometimes you need to be all in at work and building your career or building your business and, and going just full gas at that. Other times there might be a requirement for you to be all in on family and making sure, you know, if you're dealing with stuff at home or you know, you're in a new relationship or you're having a kid or whatever it might be that those sort of milestone events in your life, you have to be all in there. And I wouldn't say to the detriment of other areas, but certainly you're treading water in other areas of your life so that you can excel in one and sometimes two. So the macro macro balance, micro imbalance is to say that on a short term, if you look at the key areas of your life, whether it be friends, family, work, fitness, whatever it might be, you should be imbalanced. So if you're, in my case, if I'm building up to a multi-stage ultra marathon, I'm definitely imbalanced, right? I'm, I've got... Some time for family i've got time for work and i'm all in on fitness but then when i'm not doing a race and there's a big project coming up with work and i want to try and get a promotion or in my case trying to you know you're not trying to win a client or whatever it might be within your company you've got to be all in in that space to the as again not necessarily to the detriment of other areas but certainly you're treading water in those areas and you're not you're not progressing them as fast as you are in the in the one area you're focused on when you take a um a step back from all of this and you're looking at a macro view you're, you're going to progress different areas of your life at different times but if you step back you're going to excel in all of them over time so if you're looking at a long enough time horizon whether that's a five years or ten years you're going to be able to be really excellent really move the needle in each area of your life but in any given month it might look like a disaster to somebody that's looking in from outside because they just think oh well no you're not turning up to any social event because no, you're, you're just all focused in on your running or something like that. But you no, know, they're also going to be the people that are going to be applauding you when you manage to you know, complete your first ultra marathon or do something that's exceptional in that space or grow your business and, and do something exceptional in that space. Those things will only happen if you're all in in those areas of life at some point for a duration. What that duration is, is different for everybody depending on the scenario and the, and the sequence of events. But that's the, the top line view of micro imbalance, macro balance. Kind of like the Steve Steve Jobs uh, famous quote that you can only connect the dots by looking back, isn't it? As such, like yeah. and it it all all links up. Uh, just briefly, because I know you you spoke about it before, and I think it's important to kind of delve into it. Um, especially with business owners that I have on the podcast. Uh, just about COVID, how did it affect you and, and affect the the guys at work, the team at work? Yeah, look, COVID was difficult for everybody. Um, now. Now, for us in particular, we were in in a somewhat fortunate position that we've we've from day one really focused on the culture within the agency. So very strong working environment. Excuse me, very strong working environment. Everybody looks out for each other. So when we were tested by COVID, we had a foundation that was already there. We were able to just lean into what already existed, which was empathetic communication, over communication within the business, and real real care for for every person that was in our community. Um, and because of that, it put us in a much stronger position coming through COVID. I've got friends that were working in other environments, other companies, 
that they didn't have a great work culture. Everybody was just, you know, maybe super sales focused or whatever it might be, but they, they weren't focused on the empathetic human side of being in a community. So when COVID hit, they had a real tough time when a manager that has never showed any empathy to them is trying to have an awkward Zoom call to try and connect with them because they're told that's the right thing that they should probably do whilst everybody's at home and trying to figure out life. Now, we didn't have that problem. So we were already a step ahead, which was, we, we, you know, that was fortunate. It's also just the right thing to do from a human perspective. Outside of that, look, we started to lose contracts and have contracts put on pause as, as everybody did. I didn't know how far down that rabbit hole we were going to go. But very early on, I told everybody in the company that we that the company would take every hit possible. We wouldn't be cutting salaries and we wouldn't be letting go of anybody. Now, that was obviously a risky move, but what it did was it gave a lot of feeling of security to everybody in the organization, which was needed. Now, obviously, if that played badly for us, then you know that would have been maybe in hindsight the wrong thing to do. But at the time, it felt like the right thing to do. And it felt like we could weather the storm for a period of time until we could find ways to add value to our clients. So by doing that, it, it gave a lot of security to the business. And then um, everybody really pulled together in order to, to deliver. And I can only say, like, you know, obviously massive appreciation to everyone in the community that, that did that. That allowed us to, to, to position the agency well. Now, from a macro view, once people started to figure out what life was going to be like kind of during and post COVID, everyone realized that digital was actually significantly the way that everybody was going, right? Whether that be through um, online retail or pretty much every other way of communication, everything lent into, into online platforms. We'd been building a company for a number of years that was specifically just for that. And we had a lot of government clients. So what that did is a lot of companies then started coming to us because they needed our services. So that actually allowed us to grow. We then had a different problem because going into 2021, we then had this rapid growth, but we still didn't really, everyone was still grappling with how do you run a company from being remote and not seeing each other. And you know, there was people that were joining, a lot of people that were joining the company that we'd never met before. Um, and we didn't meet for more than a, you know, some for more than a year. We built an office in Egypt. We ended up with 45 people over there. All this was done during COVID. So it was it was a bit chaotic when you're scaling a company that fast, but also you can't even be on ground, hands-on, shaking everyone's hands and engaging. So that was a that was a unique set of challenges. And um, but I'm also grateful for those challenges, right? So the way I view life is you, you know, in one way or another, you choose your problems. Everybody has problems, they're just different. So I would rather choose the problems of oh my God, how are we going to scale this business? And you know, we're, we're pulling our hair out, figuring out how to do that, rather than the problem of me having to let go of people because we didn't have business. So I'm grateful for my problems, but they were still challenges that we had to overcome. And we had to make sure that a team that had been battered by COVID, mentally, some physically, psychologically, were also being asked to work probably harder than they'd ever worked because we were scaling the business so hard. So we really had to find this balance between um, managing burnout, managing people, and and that's not an even even playing field, right? Some people really struggled. Some people did okay with it. Some people really they were stuck in a studio apartment and didn't see people for a long period of time. People were some people were scared and didn't want to go out outside their house for three to six months. Everybody kind of engaged with this very differently. So it was a challenge from a leadership perspective to understand from a human standpoint how to best build this business for the benefit of everybody but also make sure that we were doing it in a way that, that, that from a human standpoint was manageable for everybody that worked in the organization and we weren't leaning too hard on certain people. So that was, that was a challenge. Were we perfect at it? No, 
when I look back macro, do I think we did the the right thing 90% of the time? Yes. Um, people have stayed with us through that period. Many people have had multiple promotions since then. People are earning a lot more since then because we've been able to build the business. So there's been a lot of positives that have come out of it. Have some people had to leave the business because COVID was very difficult for them and they couldn't stand being in a fast growing agency. Yes, some people have left as well. So it's just finding that balance when you step back and was the intent right? Did we do the right thing as many times as we could? And were we doing the right thing by people? I believe yes, but um, but yeah, it was a challenge, mate, trying to get all of those hundreds of thousands of decisions correct every time. Especially over like over over Zoom or Teams or whatever the case may be. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how did you deal with that situation when you're expanding? You you touched on in Egypt. You know, there's guys you haven't or you haven't you didn't meet a team for you know, over a year or close to a year. How did you, how did you manage that? So we, we, again, fortunate to have some amazing people in our organization. We already had a handful of people that were working in Egypt for us. So they were freelancing. Oh, I'd say freelancing. They were like long-term freelancing for us um, on certain accounts. Now we gave them the opportunity to, to step up, take a bigger role with us and help us build a more formal team in Cairo. Uh, and they they stepped up and they they did an incredible job for the for the organization and we were able to build that. So we were then um, yeah through through amazing team members on ground in Cairo we were able to find a location, uh, rent a space, do a fit out, uh, and now you know we had forty five people in there by the end of COVID. So it's been um, it's been incredible. And then you know in twenty twenty we were also doing the same thing in in Saudi because in what six weeks before COVID hit we just hired our first full time people in Saudi. Um, oh, yeah, so we, are, we were opening in Saudi, building that team, scaling fast in, uh, um, in in Egypt, and then you know the same thing in the UAE. So late 2020 and 2021 were pretty tough for, for that. And I'd like to delve into what you do exactly soon, but I want to bring it back um, just to create a picture. I'd like to bring bring kind of bring the give the listeners an insight into the the people I'm I'm chatting to. And it kind of gives a better insight into you know how they got to where they are today. Uh, you have an incredible mindset, um, and you're extremely motivated. And from the events alone, what you did and have done is absolutely crazy. So I think you need a very strong mindset to do that. Were you always like that, or does it would it date back to something in your childhood or how you were brought up? Um. There are many things that, I, that I'm grateful to my parents for in terms of instilling values and principles and these types of things. But in all honesty, the mindset side of things in terms of um, having a strong, resilient mindset, I wouldn't say that comes from childhood so much. I would say that there may be elements. You know, I was in boarding school from an early age. And I'm quite a bit older than you, so that was pre-internet. Uh, so that was pretty challenging when you're in a different country in boarding school and there's no WhatsApp, there's no Facebook, there's no, there's no internet, there's just you know, one phone call a week to your parents and, and writing letters and stuff. That was early days. I was, um, I was what, 12, 11, 12 years old when I first went to boarding school. So I think that makes you independent and it makes you resilient in a way. If I look back, there's probably elements of that where you just had to, you, you had to deal with your own shit quite simply. You know, if something was going wrong, you had to deal with it because you know, I was a kid, but I was also on my own there. And um, now later in life, I would say that it's more, the getting into the ultra running side of things, it teaches you quite quickly because A, you can't have an ego when 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 you're an ultra runner because the second you bring an ego into a sport like that, it you know, you you come short and you fail miserably. 
Um, so I think it's a, it's been a combination of things I've learned from some amazing people that are in my ecosystem, uh, kind of growing up uh, in the latter years and and going through the, um, the, the, the ultra running space. But resilience is built by testing yourself again and again and again. And the... I think it was, um, I, I was, I listened to this on uh, a friend of mine, Chris, uh, Chris's podcast, uh, Modern Wisdom, and he had, um, I think it's Alex Hormozzi on there. And I'm going to butcher this quote, but Alex Hormozzi had, had a quote that gave something like, you don't build self-confidence by shouting affirmations in the mirror every morning. You build self-confidence by having a stack of proof points that say who you are again and again and again so you outwork your self-doubt now i when i first heard that from him and i've subsequently heard it from chris i think it is uh, incredibly accurate and it spoke to me personally because when i first went into some of these ultras at the first race you may have heard on a previous podcast um was in wales 80 kilometers across the welsh mountains i fell to pieces in that i was complaining about stuff my feet were sore blah 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 you know complaining about all sorts of things and I had a, um, it was a life-changing period after that, where I went from that race where I, um, I finished the race and you know, I went in with pretty severe food poisoning. It was, it was just a mess all around. It was, you know, I was in bed for 14 hours up until about three hours, four hours before the race. I was taking meds throughout it. Like it was a, it was a mess. I didn't explain that in, in your previous podcast. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, because of all these things, I was complaining a lot. Now, what happened after that race? Every time anyone would mention it, and obviously it was quite early days of ultra running, so people would be like, "Oh, wow, you did this, blah blah blah." Tell me about it. And inside, I was like, "Ah, oh, you know, I feel, I feel a bit ashamed of myself because of I knew I didn't want to be like, oh yeah, it was great, mate. You know, we ran across these mountains, it was pretty cool." When I knew inside I hadn't performed well, and I felt, um, I felt ashamed with how I'd, uh, how I'd shown up. Let's say now from that period to the next race, which was the Marathon de Saab. I went through this whole thought process of like, I either pull back and don't do any of this type of thing again and just say, ah, you know what? I didn't enjoy it anyway. I'm not going to get into it and blah, blah, blah. And just go and find something else to do. But I knew that that would eat in the back of my mind. So by signing up to the Marathon de Saab, which was, you know, it's 250 kilometers across the Sahara Desert. You carry everything that you need. They only give you water for the, you know, the five, five or six days you're out there. Um, and that's obviously a pretty intense race. And to go into that, I knew that I had to do not necessarily the physical work. I could do that. But the mental work of how am I going to show up in this race? And I went through this whole process of like, what are the, what are the, the principles that I need to instill in my own mind? So that when, when the shit hits the fan, I'm prepared for it. And I think that's one thing to, to, to take away, right? For listeners, if you're signing up for something or you're going into something that you know is going to be difficult, the worst thing you can do is to say, I will see like how bad it gets. I'll deal with that when it happens. You know, you're at some point your back is going to be against the wall. You're going to be tired. You're going to be, you're going to want to quit. Everything's going to go south on you. And you're going to be stood there and you're going to have a decision to make. And that is, do I move forward or do I quit? That is going to happen inevitably, whether it be through a, a, a 10K run for some people, a half marathon, an ultra, whatever it might be any physical endeavor or even if it's just a work project that you're going to get stuck into and you might you, you're not sure if you're going to get through to the end of it you have to pre-plan when this happens this is how i'm going to behave so that when you get to that point you go ah i knew i was going to get here and i told myself when i got to this point 
this is what I was going to do. And you do that and you do it again and again and again, and you outwork your self-doubt to the point that you prove to yourself that you are this person. I wasn't in my head an ultra runner when I started my first ultra marathon. I, in fact, I, I failed miserably. But then you build up this credibility to yourself. You have to prove to yourself. You can't just shout it in the mirror, right? That, oh, okay, well, you know, I could do this just because I, I say I can. It's bullshit. Like, you can only do it if you actually do it. And then you finish the race and you're like, wow, I did that. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And then you get to the point where this is me. This is what I do. So when, when everything falls apart, you're like, I've been here so many times. I know exactly what I need to do. There's no way I'm quitting. I'm going to drag this guy with me. I'm going to drag this girl with me because this is what I do. And this is, you have to get to that point. If you want to be resilient, you have to get to that point where you've proven to yourself over and over again that you're capable of this. Do you think the most important point looking back now was that decision and that chat you had with yourself after the 80K um, run across the Wales, uh, Welsh mountains? Do you think that was the most important because you, you were able to build up um, credibility into yourself after that? I, I think it was, the, it was the biggest risk point. So it was the, you know, finishing the marathon de Sable, crossing that line and finishing it, was the, the life-changing moment for me because I proved to myself that I could do it. And then once I did that, I had, I had credibility in my mind. I believed myself, right? I had credibility in my mind. So it was my first proof point that I am who I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy before the race. Afterwards, I became the guy. And then I, I kept compounding that so that in my head, I know when the shit hits the fan. I know I'm the person that can deal with it. Whether it's at work and there's 100 people or 200 people in the organization, that are losing their mind about something, we're in a boardroom because something goes wrong and maybe there's an issue with a client, whatever it might be. I, I now know that I'm sat there and I know I'm the right person to be sat there making the decisions because I've proved to myself time and time and time again that I can do this. I don't hope for it anymore. I know it. And when you, in, when you instill that knowledge into yourself that you've deeply proven to yourself that you're capable, then you feel like you can deal with anything. I'm not saying that you're that you're unstoppable in, in I just I, the way that you the way you end up showing up the way that you end up being in a room is is, is self-confidence and that's what self-confidence is it's like I believe in myself that no matter what comes I will be able to deal with it in one way or another I don't know what it looks like I don't know how I'm going to get past it but I believe in myself and when you get to that point then you know then you'll find success in pretty much any area that you you, you want to apply that to Love it, love that, and that like that's. I feel like going at anything. No, I'm just so so motivated after hearing that. <laughs> uh, did, um, Tom, what brought you to Dubai at the time? I know you're you're here since the noughties, aren't you? Mid noughties. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, exactly that. So about nineteen years now. So two thousand and four, I think you would know. Yeah, two thousand four. I think I got to to Dubai. So look, I I went to university. I was very fortunate to go to university in South Africa. And then um, there was a friend of mine that, that took a job here in Dubai. She phoned me up. I was just messing around after, after uni, not really doing too much. Um, and I just, I, I had an opportunity and I took it. And I think that's the, um, going back to you, you have to say, you have to say yes to those big, scary opportunities early on in your career, right? You have to try everything, taste everything. And the, the biggest takeaway from those lessons for me was that, and this is something I speak to a few people about, Everybody gets so caught up in, in big decisions as if they are, are for the rest of your life. That there's no, you cannot, 
admit maybe, okay, it didn't work out. You go and do something else. People get so caught up. Like, oh my God, should I go? Shouldn't I go? Should I go? Shouldn't I go? And I've spoken to people that have contacted me over the years of, um, oh, I've listened to your podcast, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'm thinking of moving to Dubai or I'm thinking of making this life-changing decision. I'm not sure what to do. I end up chatting to them on Instagram or something like that. And nine times out of 10, I ask them, well, what if you did do it and it didn't work out? What would you do? Well, I could just come back. Cool. So what, what would you have lost? Nothing. So is there really any risk to this decision whatsoever? Probably not. Or maybe there's a little bit, but not as much as you think there is. Very few decisions are for life that you cannot change afterwards. So for me, I was like, I'm going to get on a plane and go to Dubai. And I'm going to see what happens. And if I don't like it, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go somewhere else. I don't have to figure out the rest of my life when I'm coming out of university. And I think that's a, a takeaway that can play out for not just, just out of uni, but for a, a lot of times. People go for a job and, oh, should I, shouldn't I, should I? Should I should. Yeah, well, if you don't like where you are, and that's an opportunity, take it. If you don't like that one either, then leave that one and go find somewhere else, right? Don't think that just because you're making one big decision, it's the thing that has to you have to stick with it for the next 10 years. It's not true. So then when you take that pressure off yourself and you realize that half the decisions you're making are not as serious as you make them out to be, then you'll move through life a lot easier. You would, and a follow-on from that, when you were in Dubai the first couple of years, were you working in a gym or a franchise or what yeah, was? so I worked um so I went to a few different places, but what you're probably thinking of is I was at uh, Fitness First. Fitness first, yeah, yeah. And and then then from that was it the during recession that you kind of reassessed things, was it? And that's how the create group kind of started off. Yeah, yeah. So yes, something something like that. So in um um in when were we? Two thousand eight, something like that. So I was in uh, I was head of marketing for fitness first across the region. So it was 14, 15 clubs across across seven or eight countries, something like that. So I was bouncing around a lot, looking after the marketing and the visual branding for, for those locations. And then um, in 2008, obviously, there was the global financial crisis. That hit Dubai in about 2010. It took a little bit longer. Um, so in 2010, I lost my job at Fitness First because they had to cut right back. They ended up selling the company. And there was um, there, yeah, there was a few, uh, few issues there. So when that happened, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I had an opportunity actually Red Bull they'd offered me a job um to do something I forget where it was but uh I remember being stood in the business center in Dubai Media City and I could I could show you the square the one square meter on the floor of where I was stood and I was on the phone and there was a recruiter telling me that they wanted me to take this job and I was silent and I was thinking about it because I just started doing a few things consultancy wise just kind of helping a few people out with some marketing advice and this sort of thing and I stood there and the lady said to me, are you still there? And I said, yes. She said, I really think you should take this job. You know, it's, it's a difficult market, the crisis, blah, 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 blah. And I stood there and I said to her, you know what? I'm going to see if this works out. So I'm not going to take the job. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and put the phone down and walked back to the desk that I had in, um, in, in the business center. And that was the start of Create. Well, that's phenomenal, and it's it, it was a brilliant story. I heard that you uh, you again, obviously a good salesperson, um, and you you had some meeting with a, a client in a new building, and you had no electricity or or anything like that. Is that yeah. is that true? Or is that only uh, is that no, true? Yeah. No, it's it's a it's an origin story of uh, of create of create. So I'll give you the um, the top line version. Otherwise, we'll be here for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that. top line. Yeah. This was one of the, 
uh, I had a friend through rugby that was commercial director of one of the big, uh, big multinational companies here in, in Dubai. And he gave me an opportunity because we'd moved into we were doing design work and we'd started doing some websites. And again, this was, this was man, this was super early. It was maybe 2000 and I don't know, 15, 14, something like that. Um, maybe even a little bit earlier than that, maybe a bit earlier. Anyway, so long story short, we've been working with this company. We'd, we'd gone to their offices. We'd shown them the first uh, um, first view of the website. They really liked it. They asked for a bunch more work for us to do. So great, we were growing this account. We got three different websites that we were building. And this is a big multinational company here. So building three websites for them, they were very happy. They were like, we want to come to your office to um, to go through the next round of you know feedback and blah, blah, blah. Now, at the time, we were, I was working in the business center. I didn't have an office. I had just had a desk in an open area, and I had a few people working on different desks that weren't mine. Um, we did, so we didn't have an office. So we were, as we were going through this contract, uh, we were getting closer and closer. They kept pushing, saying, we need this. We, need, we want to come in. We want to come in. I was negotiating for a lease on a contract in a, in a different area. Finally got that signed. Thank God it was, um, it was during uh, wintertime here in Dubai, so it wasn't too hot. There was no electricity, no AC. And the guys were like, uh, the client was said to me, we're coming on Thursday, like basically like it or not, we're coming on Thursday at 9 a.m. Just send me a location. No no opportunity to say, oh, don't worry, we'll come to your office. So anyway, the guy's turning up. So this is the, the senior marketing director of a multinational company and his number two. So two of them are coming in. We've got five days to figure out how we get in the office, how we put furniture in the office and how we set it up as if it's a real office. So... <laughs> All of these things came, we figured, it, figured them out in the space of five days. One friend of mine was moving out of his offices. He said, I've got a load of furniture, you can have it. So I had a removals truck, pick up furniture, fill this empty office. I spoke to the landlord, I said, can I have it a week early? You don't have to connect it to electricity. Just give, allow me to use the space. He said, yeah, fine, no worries, it's empty anyway. So we, it was a space of maybe you could fit 25 people in it. So it was a reasonable space. We had to fill it with desks, fill it with a boardroom table, and all of these things. And then we had to present, which was the big problem. We had to present on the on the computer. Um, the uh, But they wanted the fancy screens and blah, blah, blah. We had no electricity. So I managed to find something called a UPS, which was basically a big battery. And again, I had to borrow that from someone else I knew. I had to drive down to the other side of the city, borrow it from their storeroom, plug it in under the boardroom table. So the only person, there was 25 people sat in that, uh, in that office, maybe a few less. Um, and they were pretending to be working away. No, they were, all the computers were turned off. So everyone was just pretending to work. And this client came in, sat down at the desk, had the full presentation on the, uh, on the one computer in the office that was working because it was plugged into the, uh, the battery pack underneath. Um, and he approved everything, said thank you very much, and walked out. And he never knew that there was no, there were all these people that were walking around the office and people pretending to be on computers, that there wasn't a, a drop of electricity in the whole place. We got away with it. We ended up doing 12 websites for that company over the following three years. Um, and I, I did actually tell him the story over a drink in, uh, in a bar about five years later um, after he'd left the company and he absolutely loved it. So, so yeah, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you just got to, if you know you can back yourself up, sometimes you've got to wing it. That moment you were told um, about cancer, the cancer you had, um, when was it? And can you kind of, I say, you obviously still can remember that moment. What, can you describe it to us? Yeah, it's, look, it's very difficult. Um, it was it was early days of being in Dubai. I was still at Fitness First, so it would have been around about um, 
you'd think that date was etched into my mind, but it's not. I'd say it was around about 2008. It would have been around there. Um, and I remember the meeting specifically. I felt something was wrong. It didn't feel, feel something just didn't feel right. And um, so I went to the doctors and, you know, they, they, they confirmed that. And the doctor sat across the table and, and he starts using the word survival rate, which is, yeah, it, it, yeah, your life gets flipped turned upside down when that happens. It literally, you just, uh, you're like, what? Like this could finish? Is it like, but I have not done this. I've not thought of that. I'm, yeah, I'm only just getting started, you know, and it's, um, it's incredible. And the lesson that it taught me is that no, no matter what's going on in your life, your health is absolutely the most important thing. Um, you know, and post that, I probably hammered myself too hard with, not with the fitness stuff, but with, with work sometimes, taking too much on mental health, this type of thing. But certainly as I've got a little bit older and slightly wiser, I've um, I've given a lot more time to that. And now I'm getting, you know, I'm 40 now and I give, um, I give myself more space. I make sure that I'm looking after myself because I know that, that my performance is directly linked to the wellness of other people. So it's not just, it's not selfish for me. It's actually... I need to be performing at the you know the best the the highest possible um, level that I can to make sure that everybody in my organization those people that I affect have get the best from me. Um, so so I know I, I know it's critical. But going back to the cancer part, it's it's very difficult to hear those words. But it it lit a fire inside of me to to know that I wanted to go on an adventure. I wanted to squeeze as much life out of life i wanted to go and find everything on every corner of the world i wanted to roll the dice on everything did that make me roll the dice on starting a business i don't know if those two things are directly linked but i certainly know that i take more risks and i'm willing to try things and i have a much more optimistic attitude about most things because i also know that much of what we worry about is not important and i also know that much of life is about enjoying it like why why would you be here with the short time that we have and not be enjoying what you do who you do it with where you're going and not be proud of what you do so my view is that i want to make enough time for those in my life whether that be work or personal i want to make sure that i'm enjoying myself as much as i possibly can and doing as much good i think you know if people obviously people for many years have figured out you know why are we here what why What's, what's, what's our purpose of life, right? And many people talk about their inner purpose, what that means and what they want to get out of things. But there's, you know, the other side to that is why are you here for the good of humanity? Why are you? Why, why, why were you created as an individual? My belief in that is that we were all created for different reasons and we've all got something to give. And I think if all of us can take the mindset that I want this world in one way or another, could be big or could be small, but I want this world to be in a better place when I leave it, than when I started, from everything that I can affect, every every positive interaction, every system, process, organization, and charity work, whatever it might be to you as an individual, how can you make sure that by the time the end comes for you, and that can be a, unfortunately, it can be short or it could be very long, you don't know, when that happens, to know that you know what, the world is a better place because I was here, and I think that's really important for if many of us take that forward and there's enough of us that think that way, then the world will improve, right? It's up to us how we can improve it. You look at climate change, all this stuff is within our control. If we can figure this out now um, and make sure that the world is in a better place than when we arrive, then then you know, I think humanity can do some pretty incredible things. But it starts with each, each individual. And that kind of dates back to 
that moment hearing those words really kind of ignited a fire or lit a switch inside you would that be right yeah absolutely like going on especially the adventure side you know i didn't want to i didn't want to cruise through the rest of my life i was like i'm going to push every boundary of everything that i do if i'm going to go into fitness it's going to end up being ultra marathons and seeing how far i can go and where i can do it if it's going to be working i want to build my own business i want to build it as the, the best possible thing that i can do i want it to be big i want it to be impactful i want it to affect a lot of people and i want to create something special not just cruise through a job don't worry too much about a promotion and just you know just be treading water i want to like and, and i think this is why i push everything and sometimes to the frustration of others but i, I push everything to, to to maximum um and and that comes from that whether it's conscious or subconscious because these all of these things affect you on a on a subconscious level and steer decisions far more and I'd say just far more than than they do on a conscious level. And, you know, we're, we're we're built in ways we make far more decisions subconsciously than we do consciously, and I think that's very much affected the way that I approach life. So, was the cancer before the time you you? I'm just trying to connect the the, the different stages of your your life now. So you had the cancer, and then was that after cancer do you decide to push things on in the rugby side of things or were you always playing rugby during that before that period I was, yeah so i was playing rugby during that period so i carried on with rugby after that um but not for too much longer because then i, I actually broke my knee um so i snapped uh what am i my acl medial and did damage to my cartilage wow. um so i had that operation to put my knee back together and then it was during the rehab from my knee that i started running because the first thing you can do when you after the, that type of injury, you can't move sideways very well, and um, because your your, your knee is not, not not strong enough to do that, but you can go in a straight line. So you start off by walking, and then you can start jogging, and then you build up your fitness. And generally, you know, if you want to go back to those things, then you do all the physio work, sidestepping, and blah blah blah, and then you can go back to rugby. So for me, when I started running, I started to realize as the business was building, I was like, this is actually a perfect sport for me because a, um. I, I had a reasonable base fitness level. So I was like, okay, well, I can actually do this. And I'm, I'm quite comfortable with it. Um, and I can also just do it anytime on my own. I don't have to be at training on a Wednesday night and do this and do this and do this, which is quite, when you've got that structure with what is your hobby, it's quite difficult with work. Because sometimes you've got to work late. Sometimes you've got to be up in the morning and you miss trainings. But with running, you can just be like, okay, cool. If I'm going to be up early to prep for a meeting, I'll just go for a run in the afternoon or the evening, right? So, and vice versa. So because of that, and um, I just got deeper into it. And then I just fell in love with running because I was like, wow, this is amazing. You can go all over the world, do all of these incredible races. And then I found this whole concept of ultra marathons. And I was like, this is the best thing ever. I was like, basically, you can just go for a run through some of the most beautiful parts of the world and race and have an amazing time and meet cool people and do this all over the world. I was like, this is it, it, it doing an ultra marathon is the in my mind it's the definition of adventure you're you're self-reliant on yourself you've got a backpack on your back with everything that you need all your food all the rest of it you're traversing through some chaotic terrain in some crazy place that most people will never get the ability to see and you have the chance to not only test yourself and go through all of the you know the mental strength stuff we spoke about earlier but just from a pure childhood childish adventure sense of adventure it's just it's it's such an incredible experience you, you come back from these races and you're like you know what i just had so much fun um and that stuff really ignites me so i come back from a 
um, from a race like that and I'm better at work, I'm more motivated in life, I'm pumped, I'm just, I feel like I just plug into my energy source when I do these things. Would, uh, a few things I want to touch on. So would you have earphones on when you're doing these events or is it just... So it's funny, I get this question quite a lot. So when I'm training, I do. And the reason being is because my life is busy and I want to keep learning. So I use training for podcasts. So I listen to specific books or I listen to specific podcasts because I want to learn about stuff. I don't have the hours in my week to sit down and, and listen to a podcast for two hours. But if I've got to do a two-hour run, I've just learned X, Y, and Z about sleep protocols from Huberman Lab or something like that. You know, I, I can I can learn the things. And then other times it's it's it might be industry related. I'll be, you know, I might be learning about AI or tech or whatever it might be that's relevant to work. So I, I do for that purpose. In a race, I don't listen to anything, no. Uh, in, a, in a race, I want to be there. I want to be present. I don't want my mind to be elsewhere. I want to feel everything. I want to feel the discomfort. I want to feel the joy. I want to play with my mind. Half of it is mental, is how you're dealing with the mental element of, of doing an ultra because it's it's so much like life. You'll think to yourself, wow, I've got 30K left to go. I feel horrific. I'm barely putting one foot in front of the other. And then 30 minutes later, you're running a PB kilometer for an ultra. Like, it's just wild. Like, it's up and down, up and down. And how to deal with your own... It's So people that, people that have mental strength, it's not that they don't get the negative self-talk. I think this is something that people get quite wrong. It's not that if you've done these things and you are mentally strong and you're seen to be the person that always finishes these races and always does et cetera, et cetera, and it's not that those people, anyone you look up to, me, me for myself, because people say, okay, you've done all these ultras, everything else must be easy for you. Or you look up to a Goggins or anyone else. Everybody has this negative self-talk at some point. Everyone says, wow, I am absolutely shattered. I don't even know if I can get through the next five kilometers. Maybe I should pull out at the next aid station, blah, 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 blah. All of this information happens to every human being. It's just what you do next. And it's it's the tools that you use to get yourself through it. Then the amount of times I've been like 100% I'm stopping at the next aid station. And then I'm, and I'm telling myself, so I shut myself up. And then before the next aid station, I'll be like, oh, let's just do one more. Let's go, one, we can do one more. We'll do one more. And you end up playing games with yourself. And this is how you play with your own mind to make sure that you get your results. So it's almost like there's two of you, right? There's one of you that's like the monkey brain that's just be like, we need to stop, we need to stop, we need to stop. And there's the other one that's smarter that's just, basically playing the other mind and, and and understanding how to do this to get the absolute maximum out of yourself is how you can be successful in these sorts of races. But it's to be clear, it's, it's not that those people don't get the negative self-talk. Even like someone like a Goggins still got something in his mind saying, man, you know, you're, you're really injured at this point. You should really stop. You should really blah, blah, blah. He finds a switch to overcome his neg negative self-talk at some point. The Oman event. What what's what's that actually called? And can you just like it seems to be absolutely crazy. You were away for forty two hours straight or forty six hours straight, was it? Or fifty six yeah. hours straight? Sorry, you were fifty six hours straight away. Yeah, I was away for fifty six hours. I was racing for forty two. Um, yeah, that race was was something else. It was far more than I. Uh, I to be honest, I, I maybe. It didn't prepare as well or didn't read the course map as well as I should have, but it caught everybody out. So it was the, they don't run the race as it was then. And it was 137 kilometers 
so the UTMB series of races uh, around the world, this was the UTMB Oman, which for at the time, it was a little while ago now, I'm pretty sure it was the first race outside of Europe for the UTMB series. They now have 32 races around the world. You get points at those races so that you can go to the World Series, which is in Chamonix in the last week of, uh, of August. But prior to that new system and the new structure they, they, they set up, they started to open up these different races around the world. So this race was through the Hajar Mountains in, uh, in Oman, uh, and it was 8,000 meters of elevation over 137 kilometers. For context, Everest is 8,800. So only 800 meters difference from summit of Everest in terms of the amount of elevation that you, that you go up in that single race. And I went into it with, a, with an injury. It actually blown my calf out and had a tear in it um, about four weeks before the race. So I was in physio twice a week, getting scans, getting electrodes, getting everything that I could, strapping it up, blah, blah, blah. Um, by the time I got to the 10-kilometer point, it just it, it had gone again. So I was hobbling through most of it, hence why it was so, <laughs> it was so bloody slow. Um, but the race was wild. You start at uh, 6 or 7 in the evening. So... You've traveled down there the day before. You're kind of just kind of milling around, obviously super like anxious to get the race going. You've got to wait all the way until that evening. You obviously try and sleep as late as you can from the night before, but that doesn't really work because your body clock, generally if you're an athlete, your body clock's waking you up early anyway because you're used to training early. So you're still up early. So you've then been awake for all of that day. You start the race at seven o'clock at night. You go through that night. You see the next dawn, fine. That's, that's all manageable. Very cold at night. When I say very cold, I mean you know, Middle East cold, so down to single digits. Um, you go through the through the day. I mean, full sunburn, thirty plus degrees, getting you know absolutely just hammering it through bodies. Just um, yeah, it was it was tough. And then you go through another night like that again, where it goes down to single. It went down to like eight degrees, blowing a gale. So you you're still sunburned from from the day. You know, dehydrated obviously it, it was just it was an absolute mess so going through the second night your body is really like you know what what the hell's going on because you they, you start to hallucinate your body's trying to shut yourself i mean you, your body's trying to shut down all the time if you sit down to i don't know address an injury or, or do whatever then you know your body's automatically just trying to get you to like lie down trying to get you to shut down so it was, it was super tough and um, but what a wild experience i mean literally laughing i mean i, I was there was something like a 50-odd percent dropout rate of that race. It was something outrageous. So there was um, there was not a huge amount of people left in the race in the second half. Um, so I just I just remember I was completely on my own for the, for the second night. I mean, I, I saw a couple of people at a few checkpoints during the night, but that was it. Um, and that was pretty wild. So, yeah, the hallucination, seeing rocks, thinking that they're people, seeing trees, and see, like convinced that you hear someone shouting, so you stop dead. And like there's just a silence and you're like wow there's nobody here but in your mind there's like i swear to god i just heard a child screaming and then so you, all this crazy stuff is happening your body's doing you know doing backflips and you come through the second and we're finishing i finished on that that um that, that final morning and it's just yeah it's wild coming through like three four in the morning and the sun starts to come up and you're like oh i haven't been to bed it feels like three days now and you're still going um we got into a checkpoint at, uh, I said we, I got into a checkpoint at 120 kilometers and that was the final climb of the race was 1.2 kilometers vertical up over a three kilometer distance. So you can imagine the gradient, like at one point, I mean, like 
you know, your, your poles are away and you're using your hands on a rock face, shimmying around a rock face with a 600 meter drop behind you. It was just, it was absolutely, well, and that was after it's got 120 kilometers in your legs and you've been awake for all those hours and you're hallucinating and it's blowing a gale and it's eight degrees and you're just like, I think I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to die up here. Um, but it was, yeah, it was good fun. So looking back on stuff like that was just, again, what an, what an incredible adventure. Did you a backpack with you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you're carrying everything that you need, right? For the obviously not like a multi-stage, um, but yeah, you've always got a back on a backpack on because you've got your um your your water bottles on the front, you've got gels, you've got a maybe like a jersey or something in the back. You also on all of these races, you always have to have mandatory kit, which is like a first aid kit. Um uh, do we have to have a flare on that one? No, we didn't have a flare, but there's there's other stuff, there's GPS trackers and all this sort of things. So you've always got some gear with you. I was going to say, like, if something happened, how would they locate you? But if, if they have the GPS, that's how, how they locate you. Uh, you, you, um, like, were you running in or walking or what was, like, what, especially, like, terrain like that? I don't think you can really yeah, so run through it. It's a mix. I mean, you're racing at the end of the day. So, um, bear in mind, I, I was injured in that race. So, I was definitely slower than I, than I would have wanted to be. But you run what you can, you hike what you can. But, yeah, I mean, the terrain is just absolutely wild. I mean, when, you know, I got to the, the 80 kilometer mark, which was like the halfway point, there's a hotel three kilometers as a bird flies directly in front of me. But it's 1.2K down and 1.2K back up. At one point, we were clipped into carabinas and we were going along a Via Ferrata with a hard hat and a, and a, and a harness on. And that was at the 80K mark in the middle of a trail running race. I was just, uh, it was wild. So to be honest, mate, for me, it was just about survival and finishing it. You know, my body was screaming at me to, to stop in many for many reasons in many ways um and for me it was just an absolute just bare knuckle fight with myself just to get myself to the uh get myself to the end of that race and, and not quit so even though i was just dragging my ass to get there i just thought i don't care how long it takes me if i walk away from this race and i've completed it then you know i know deep down that that's that's something i can be proud of so that was it and that uh that that Arctic um Arctic event as well, the two hundred thirty k across uh, Swedish Lapland. Was that which was the most recent one? Was that the most recent one? Yeah, the most recent one. That was just in February, last February. So um, uh, no, not last February, a year ago, February. So what, sort of uh, 13, 14 months ago now. Um, and that was when I've been injured since. So I'm only just getting back into training now. But but yeah, that was two hundred thirty kilometers across. Uh, across the Swedish Arctic uh, in February, so deep winter, so temperatures down to minus thirty. Um, we uh, again carrying everything that you need for for the five days in the in the snow, um, and you know how you go into the frozen tundra, um, how, gale, all sorts of stuff. How did you train for that? Like you went from like Dubai weather and Oman, an event in Oman, to extremely negative sub zero temperatures how the hell can you replicate that yeah it was pretty serious i mean i think we the on the the day i arrived it was minus 20 and i'd come from plus 25 so it was a big temperature difference um it was a big temperature difference so i did some training in uh for, for those that listen in dubai or no no ski dubai um which is an indoor ski slope in one of the in, in one of the malls and i i was lucky enough to train there that didn't really help to be honest it was like minus three like it doesn't help much, but it allowed me to test out my snowshoes, test my bag, um, change of change of tops and stuff, and and that type of thing in the cold. So it did something, but outside of that, mate, to be honest, you just had to had to suck it up and just just get on with it. Well, it's and what was the aftermath? Yeah, 
one thing before I move from that, what was the aftermath like from that event and the old man um, event in regards to your body? How did your body react to when the adrenaline kind of went down? Yeah, I mean, look, the the I went again. I've been I've been carrying a few injuries for a long time. That I've I've now finally put to bed. Um, but I had a, a back issue going into the into the into the race in uh, um, the ice ultra in Sweden, and that uh, yeah, that really it really flared up in the cold. So the cold really 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 did me in from that standpoint. But you know, I was unfortunately having to slam a lot of painkillers and stuff just to get through the race. And I was pushing myself pretty hard in the race. I knew that I could have, I had a choice to be like, right, you know, you've done all this training, you're here, you're not going to come back here. You either go as hard as you can and, and do as much as you can and perform as well as you can, or you can just try and get through this race and just kind of survive it. And but I'm still, even though it put me out for eight months, nine months, I'm still happy with the decision I made, which was to just hammer myself as much as I could and, and try and perform as well as I could. So I, you know, I did myself damage, but I, I, I don't feel sorry for myself about anything. I, I, I don't really ever with anything, and I think that's one of the things that helped with these sorts of things. I got injured, so be it. You know, I've done, a, I've had a good career of, of ultra running, and if I need to step out for eight or nine months to get my body back strong in the right places and fix a few things, and then go back harder ultra running again, then that's awesome. I can't complain about that. I've been able to see the world because of this. So again, if you know, if 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 it hurt me for a few months, then it is what it is. Um, so yeah, it's been a tough, tough eight months. I've been in a lot of chronic pain. Um, but yeah, now just over the last, I'd say the last three months, I've managed to put that behind me and, and I'm pain free and I'm training hard again and I feel amazing. So I feel stronger than I did before I went into any of those races that we've discussed. So uh, I'm looking forward to the next 12 months. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Uh, just before we, we kind of close off the whole uh, interview, I'd like to just kind of discuss the Cray group. Um, you've grown into a, a quite dominant force. Um, it's the top, it was in top 50 fastest growing agencies in the Middle East last year. Am I right in that? Yeah. In the world. In the world. Oh, wow, in the world. Um, that must give you incredible pride. Um, and they've, and another point, the fact that you're doing a lot of traveling with endurance running as well, and obviously with the business, it's amazing how you can still grow a company that much. I know it's not just you, it's your team, but it's amazing that you can keep both of those balloons up in there. Yeah, look, it goes back to having an incredible team, right? And and I, in, in no stretch of the imagination have I done this on my own. Um, I've got an amazing senior, uh, senior team that work with me and work around me. Um, they uh, they allow me to do these things because they know that at the end of the day, if if my head's in the right place, that, that that's helpful for everybody. Um, and we try and support each other in that way, right? So we're uh, we try and approach work differently. That you know, we very much champion the fact, and I try and lead by example in terms of everybody should have a hobby that takes them away from work and disconnects them and allows them to refresh. Some people have that. Some people just need to go and lie on a beach. I don't judge. Like whatever people want to do. For me, it's going off on one of these adventures. Um, but also those big adventures are really only once a year. Um, and outside of that, you know, I'll do some smaller races and stuff, which is fine. And you know, I do live on a plane at the moment, especially I, I think this, having this chat with my wife earlier, and I think this year has been, I pro I've probably done the first three months of the year, I've probably done as much flying as I did in the last 12 months. Um, but a lot of that is for work. So uh, we either work remotely, um, which is very easy to do. If a digital agency can't do it, then 
then then who can? At the end of the day, we're across three offices anyway. So even if I'm working from Dubai, I'm technically working remotely for the Saudi team. I'm working remotely for the for the Egypt team and our clients in Saudi. So we're, we're all used to working from wherever we are. Um, I, I I have a place in Europe that I work from, and and that's that's effective. I can jump on a plane and come back at any point. Um, and then in terms of the uh, the rest of it is is specifically for work. So I go across to, to Saudi quite a bit. I go down to Neon quite a bit, and um, and you know wherever else we I have to be in order to make sure I'm I'm delivering for the company. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> at the moment it's a lot of travel. And you're in Dubai. Are you in Abu Dhabi as well? So we have uh, we have a lot of work in Abu Dhabi, and we have uh, we have a business in Abu Dhabi. But our, our main office, the UAE, is in uh, is in Dubai. But yeah, we've got two hundred people now across the across the company. So oh. that's uh, that's in Egypt, in Saudi, uh, and then in in the UAE. And we have a small back office in Pakistan as well, uh, from a from a dev standpoint. So so yeah, so that's um, that's how the team's structured. The you know as you mentioned before, we we were fortunate to. Uh, to get listed as one of the top 50 fastest growing agencies in the world three times. Um, so that happened in, um, what was that, in uh, 2020, uh, 2021 and 2023. Um, so, wow. so yeah, 2022, sorry, that was last year. Uh, and then, yeah, just earlier this year, or towards the end of last, we were we recognized as the, um, as the uh, digital agency of the year for the Middle East by Campaign Magazine. So, so yeah, the team has done some incredible things over the last few years. And we've been able to to get some visibility for that, which has been fantastic. How do you go about? Well, now obviously you have a track record. The company has a track record. Um, but in the early days, how do you go about winning those big projects? Because from my research, you work with Red Bull, Emirates Skydive, Dubai Fitness Challenge, um, and Expo as well. You're the content agency for for Expo Twenty Twenty at the time. How do you go about pitching to these to these companies, especially in the early days? Yeah, I mean, look, as you, to, you as you rightly said, it's easier for us now because you know we do have a reputation, we've got a size and scale, and we've got a, a, a very interesting client list. So, so people do want to work with us, which is fantastic, and the team have worked incredibly hard to get us to this point. In the earlier days, you have to get people to trust you. It's as simple as that. You know, you you have to be able to convince people to trust you and you will only build a business if you back it up. So if you're just winging it and you can't back yourself up, you you won't last very long. You might win one project, you might win two projects, but there'll be no longevity because if you start failing, those same people that could potentially be your best advocates to others will also be your your biggest detractors because if you want a if you want a piece of work and you failed on delivery, they're going to tell other people in the same way that if you delivered it fantastically for them, they also tell other people. And it's also a very small market here. So it's, um, it, you know, in Dubai, it is a small market. You know, the senior people that you're working with, a lot of them know each other. So mm-hmm. that's been great for us because we've always delivered. We've always backed up our work. We've always said that we can do it and we've done it. And because we've done that for year after year after year, we're 12 years, 13 years into business now, that gets us to a point where everybody trusts us and they write, right, these guys can do what they say they can do because... They've done it. It goes back to proof points, right? You don't just, you know, just yes, I can do this. Yes, I can do this. No, you actually have to do it. And only once you do it will everybody believe you. And also yourself. If it's on the fitness side or the or the um, the self confidence side, you're doing these things repeatedly, so you prove to yourself. In this case, on business, you have to do it repeatedly, so you can prove to everybody else that you're capable of doing it. And you, and that, you know, you 
you have to be able to do that before you can start telling people you can. So um, building trust, building relationships, and, and getting people to take a chance on you. And they will take a chance on you if you're honest, reliable, and likable. How do you switch off? For me, it's running. Really, it's running. It's time with my wife. Um, and I also travel. Like, I'm not some advocate for... You know, burning myself in both ends, and you know, I've I've been through that. I've done the I've done periods of my life talking about macro balance um, and micro imbalance. Again, like there were earlier years in my life when I was younger, in sort of late twenties, early thirties, where every weekend I was doing eight to twelve hours of work every single weekend. I would sit in the coffee shop and I would love it. I wouldn't. It wasn't a chore. I would be excited to sit in the coffee shop with nobody bothering me. And I would just bang through a whole day's worth of work. And I would get as much done on that day as I, would, I did in the previous week. And I did this over and over and over and over again. And I used to really enjoy doing that. And that allowed me to move the needle over thousands of hours and push the business forward. I don't need to do those same hours at this point, because at this point, I need to be able to make the right decisions at the right time. And I can only do that actually by stepping back, because I need to have a broader view of what goes on in the company and in the environment and make sure I'm joining the dots because I've got very capable, incredible people in my team that are running the engine. And I need to make sure that as the captain of the ship, I'm steering the ship in the right direction. And I can only do that if I'm not stuck in the middle of everything. I need to be looking outside of the box, seeing what's going on in the market and, 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 and doing that. So getting to answer your question, I can only do that if I give myself enough space mentally so whether that be spending time in, in uh, working remotely in Europe, I do a lot of hiking, I do a lot of running, I get out of, um, I get out of work mode a lot. And I, then I, when I re-engage, I'm far more focused, I'm far better at what I do. I've often come up with ideas when I'm running. So even though I'm switched off, I get to, I enjoy what I do. So I get to like percolate ideas in my mind and I come back in and I'm like, right guys, I've had this idea about blah, 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 blah. Let's investigate this. Let's do that. So I've become more effective at my job because I switch off. Um, and that's the way I see it. So it's running and spending time with my wife and it's traveling. What, what is the baton, baton, how do you even pronounce it? Batonist? Are you you're a founder of that as well? Yeah, the botanist. Botanist, sorry, apologies. No worries. The botanist is my wife's business. It's an incredible company that we got involved with Um uh, we bought into the company um, in 2021, uh, and my wife now runs that business as co-founder with the original founder. Um, and it's a, it's an incredible business, which is an eco-friendly home care brand. Now, what that means is that think of everything that you put underneath your sink, every cleaner, every product, we have an eco-friendly, um, non-toxic version of all of those things. So it's a multi-purpose cleaner, it's a kitchen cleaner, bathroom cleaner, dish soap, um, room spray, sanit hand sanitizer, um, candles, everything that you can think of in that space. We also do a whole range of, of um, very high quality hand soaps, all based on Castile soap um, and essential oils. So no toxins, no preservatives, none of that uh, crap goes into it. And what it does is it removes toxins from the house. So you'd be, you'd be amazed, and I <laughs> this isn't the conversation for that, but you would be amazed by how much um, how many toxins are in everybody's house because of all of the sprays they put all over the surface. You drop a piece of food, you pick it up, you put it in your mouth off the kitchen table or surface because you've sprayed it with Dettol or blah, blah, blah. The amount of toxins that we all absorb into our bodies, the sprays, the aerosol sprays, 
it's carcinogenic, it's pollutant, it's it, there are so many negative effects um, with your body. So we remove all of that. So everything is eco-friendly, clean, preservative-free, um, toxin-free, uh, and that's the business we're building. So we've, um, as I said, my wife runs it. I I, I help in the background, um, and my wife and uh, and the co-founder Ruby um, are building this company across uh, Dubai. Seem soon to be shipping into. Uh, Saudi, and we're opening up in in Europe. Hopefully, within the next twelve months, uh, we're going to have a manufacturing facility in Europe. And have you are you going to open shops in in Dubai, in, in in the regions? Or so we won't go. We won't go shop. We're in all of the uh, Spinney stores. So um, uh, so yeah, we're in uh, what, I think about twenty five stores at Spinney's. We're in Crate and Barrel. Um, yeah, we're in a whole range of uh, a whole range of stores. Um, so that's our retail side. We won't open a shop ourselves. That's not on the plans at the moment. We want to be more of a um, uh, of an online store. Uh, so we sell we sell a lot through our own channels. So um, we very much want to be build, building this um, business as an e-commerce brand. So the topic at the moment, um, it's everywhere and it's getting more and more. Every day you look on LinkedIn, it's there. And I think the fact that I have you on, I want to chat to you about it. I know we'll, we'll wrap it up in only a few minutes. I know I always say that, so I do apologize. Chat GP, GPT, what's your opinion on that? So look, Chat GPT and all of the large language models that have come out recently, the AI is a very is a very interesting and dynamic space at the moment. Um, I don't think we have enough control over it and we don't necessarily know what direction it's going in. Um, you may have seen or your listeners may have heard of the letter that was, uh, that was published recently that was signed by 1,200 of the top people in tech, everybody from Steve Wozniak from Apple to to Elon Musk himself signing that to say, look, we need to put a pause on this for the next six months and understand what it is that we're doing as a human race with this technology. Because if we just keep building and keep building and make it more and more advanced, we're going to lose control of it. Um, so that's a little bit daunting. Now, if I dial it back a little bit in terms of how it can help all of us in our day-to-day -day lives, I think it's phenomenal. I had a, um, a meeting internally at the agency today with our tech council, uh, we were talking specifically around the integration of all of these tools into into our workflow, and it is I'm not sure how much you've actually used it, but it's it's wild in terms of its ability to to create, to think, to reason, um, and I think it's going to the way I see it is there's two phases to this. The first phase with many agencies and many businesses is that it's going to make them more efficient, so it's going to increase their margins because they won't need as many people to do the, the work. So as they win more work, they don't necessarily need to keep hiring as many people. They just need to train the people they've got on these new technologies, whether it be mid-journey, uh, if you're in the creative space, whether it be chat GPT or, or others. And that's phase one. It will benefit businesses, it will benefit people in many ways. Phase two is a little bit more daunting. Phase two, I believe that it starts to eat businesses from the bottom up. There's a recent report that came out from Goldman Sachs that said 40% of um, the workforce across the US and Europe could potentially be uh, removed over the next, I think they said five years, and it wouldn't be five years, maybe a decade, um, because of the advances of, of AI. Now, if you put numbers to that, UAE and Europe, sorry, uh, US and Europe, you're talking about 300 million people. What oh. happens when 300 million people don't have work anymore? That's pretty daunting, right? Now, there are many different routes that you can take with this. Now, how many of those people could... Um, how many new jobs will be created in areas that didn't exist? My entire company, my job didn't exist 15 years ago, right? It didn't. I mean, there wasn't any social media. So how how, how can you be running an agency that's built on on social and web when you know the internet is is really 10 minutes old? When you think about 
humanity. So this will happen as well. There'll be whole hosts of new jobs that come up that we don't even think about, that our kids are not being trained for, but they, that will happen. So there will be, as always, a migration of, of talent into different areas. But is there a whole bunch of low-level work that will be eaten by the advent of AI? Absolutely. Now, will that benefit humanity as a whole? If AI, I believe, it's just my personal belief, is if AI is used in the right way, I think that there are enormous benefits to, to humanity. If it is used in the wrong way or we lose control of it, that's a pretty scary place to be. Do you have a morning routine? I do. 5 a.m., 6 a.m., 4 a.m.? Yeah, wake up early. So I'm normally waking up at 5.30. Um, and then, although now, actually I say that based on my training program that I now have, I'm up at 5 a.m. for four out of the five days of the, of the working week. But anyway, um, I wake up early and I get movement. So Sorry. I get to bed around, yeah, I try and be in bed asleep by 10 o'clock. If I can be in bed. But that, to be honest, in reality, it normally ends up by about 10.30. So, you know, I, I, although I am trying to prioritize sleep, um, I do as much as I can to get to bed early. But sometimes I'm working late and then, You know, it's difficult. So I play it by ear. I try and be flexible, but I just to be clear, I do try and prioritize sleep as much as I can. But um, so my mornings, I've got um, uh, hyper-focused personal training twice a week uh, with my PT that helps me with all of the areas that I need to improve for my running. And then I've got different, uh, I've got, uh, different things to do from a running standpoint. So I've got uh, uh, track meets on Tuesday morning. That's at six o'clock. Um, so it's a, a track session. Wednesday, Wednesday, I'll be PT again um, at 6 a.m. Then uh, Wednesday, sorry, that's Wednesday. Thursday, I'm doing my own training. Friday, I've got a tempo run at 6 a.m. with the with my running club. And then Saturday, I'm, all, I'm normally up and doing a long run on a Saturday and then uh, rest on a Sunday. So, yeah, so it's pretty much up at five, training at six um, every day of the week, really, apart from Sunday. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love that. I love getting insight into into people's mornings and there's a, usually a link between that and high performance. What are two daily non-negotiables for you? Movement, one way or another. No matter what I no matter what plane I'm on, where I'm going, what I'm doing, I have to move in one way or another. Now that's either a full session, whether it be weights, running, whatever it might be, or it's in a hotel room and it's mobility work. But I have to do mobility every every single day. Um, because I think that's what keeps you supple. That's what reduces your your threat of injury. That's what makes you feel good. Um, so it's abs it's absolutely that. Um, what is my other non-negotiable? I would say that. Um, what's my other non-negotiable? I would say food, my diet. Uh, so those are the two things that I that that I really do focus on. Is is I you know I train hard. I I, I get my movement right, but my diet is a non-negotiable. I don't eat crap food. I don't eat fast food. I don't eat takeaway. Um, I don't I don't negotiate on that. So my food and what that means in reality, it's easy to say that, but what that means in reality, what people need to be uh, ready to do is that sometimes you need to spend double what you would you would necessarily spend on food. If the only thing that you think is decent on the menu is the most expensive thing on the menu, then if your commitment is to only fuel your body with the right food, then you have to buy the most expensive thing on the menu, uh, whatever that might be. Now, that's obviously not always the case. I'm using an extreme example, but it's not... Um, It's very easy to say, oh, I don't want to spend on this. I don't want to, I don't want to um, splash out on that. But the reality is your health is the most important thing. And the, the most important factor in your health is your food. 
It's not your medication. It's not your supplements. It's not anything. Like we are only the product of the food that we put inside our body. So if it means going hungry and missing a meal because there's only crap food in front of you, then so be it. If it means paying more than everybody else, if it means having to get two dishes because you only want that bit from that one and that bit from that one to make the food that you want to eat, then so be it. But you have to be committed to what it is that you put in your body if you're going to expect your body to be healthy and perform. And that means mental as well as physical. Because if you're putting crap in your body, I won't go into all of the science behind that, but there's, you know, it doesn't need me to tell people that there's a whole bunch of science behind. If you put crap food in your body, you won't have clarity, you'll have mental fog, you won't perform in the right way. So how do you expect to get ahead and be successful? And last question, just to wrap it up, what advice would you give yourself the, the Tom who came to Dubai over the 19 years ago? What advice would I give myself? Um, your network and your reputation are the, the two most important factors in, in success. So making sure that everything that you do and all behavior that you have is building is building the correct reputation, like known for being a decent person, an honest person, a person with morals, a person with values, a person that you can trust, and building your network accordingly. So enough people think that way of you, then that that will almost inevitably lead to success in one way or another because people will want to do work with people that they like, people that they trust, people that other people trust, people that other people feel comfortable recommending. All of those things tie in together. If you have a short-term view and you're trying to squeeze as much money out of the first deal and extract as much uh, information out of that person if you if you if your mindset is is to um is is a, is a short term mindset to, to extract as much as whatever the thing is um in the initial relationships you you won't last but if you're constantly thinking i'm here for the long run everyone else is here for the short term especially in someone like dubai it's such a transient place people come and go if you sit if you stay and you're like you know what i'm going to be here for like 10 years I wouldn't think I'd be here for 20, but if you think I'm going to be here for like 10 years. So every decision, every every way I behave with somebody is going to be long-term. So I'm going to leave, I'll leave money on the table in a deal. I will make that person have a better outcome than myself in, in every dealing that I have with them. So there's all these people that think, you know what, I'm going to, when, whenever the opportunity arises, I want to work with that guy again. Because I didn't feel that he squeezed an extra 5% out of me or I didn't squeeze like he tried to charge me this or charge me that or I didn't feel like he was just making friends with me because he wanted something. You see what I mean? So all of this compounds and compounds. And the, the one thing that I would, I would leave the listeners with is the power of compound compounding interest. Now, you can Google that from a financial standpoint and th th you'll find a better definition than I can give you. But what I'm referring to is the, is the power of compounding when it comes to relationships when it comes to um behavior and when it comes to trying to build a network now if all of those things are constantly compounding on each other like you're constantly building positive relationships with people you're constantly building your network it's exponential it goes it just it goes through the roof so every year that i'm here now that network is vastly bigger vastly better for me and for and for other people i can give more i can receive more it all feeds into each other so that compounding interest of just doing the same thing over and over again and building that network out with good positive relationships will do far more than any degree any education any big idea any bunch of cash it's this that is the one single thing that will drive success in every area
Brilliant, Tom. And uh, that's an incredible way to, to finish up the, the episode. And look, I'd like to thank you for taking time out to run inside your podcast and best luck with everything going forward. Thank you very much, mate. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. I hope I added some some value for your, for your listeners. And um, yeah, I look forward to, to hearing some feedback. If anybody wants to reach out, just hit me up at, uh, at Tom Otten on, on Instagram. Uh, I'm normally on there spending too much too much of my life on that um so yeah if you want to have a chat just reach out and be good to good to meet people brilliant thanks tom cool thank you that is all from us on this week's episode i hope you enjoyed the interview with tom would ask you to rate review and tell your friends family about the podcast and be sure to click subscribe to the podcast too it makes a huge difference we'd ask you to follow us on social media we're available on all social media platforms if you haven't done so already As we said at the start of the podcast, this is the last episode of the series and will be the last episode for a couple of weeks. However, we'll be back very soon. Just to keep up to date with what's going on, be sure to follow us on social media and you'll see the exact date and who our next guest will be. Till then, stay safe and remember, cred on it, Talk to you all soon and thank you all for listening.